The music scene in the 1970s and 1980s is now the stuff of legend. From disco to the rise of hip-hop, punk, and new wave, innovation and artistry dominated pop music. Today's guest was in the middle of it all as a founding member of Talking Heads. He's Chris France, this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my great friend, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, artists, and more to make sense of the big stories shaping public life in the United States today. This week, we're joined by one of the founding members of Talking Heads, Chris France, who has authored a new memoir, Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, Tina. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jim. It's a great pleasure. Well, the book Remain in Love is just a wonderful read, and it really is a love story uh, to music and to the love of your life, Tina. But let's start with the music. Uh, when did you first realize that you had uh, a passion uh, for, for more than just art, but actually creating music? Well, um, I, I, I l began to love music. Uh, some of my first memories are play. My parents gave me a little uh, portable child's record player. And my, uh, the first record I had was called Teddy Bears on Parade. And uh, I loved it. I, I would play it over and over and over. And then I got Christmas was coming. So I got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer by Gene Autry. And I loved that very much. But when I actually started to play music was, uh, I think, in the third grade. I was at a good public school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they had a, a music education program. And what they started us off on, all the kids, was this little instrument, uh, a recorder that was called the flutophone, a little plastic uh, recorder with a bell on the end that was pink. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I started off on that. And then I, I, when I got good at that, they said, you show great aptitude, Chris. Uh, we think you should try the trumpet. So I said, great. So I started, I guess it was in the fourth grade, I started playing the trumpet. But it just wasn't happening for me. It wasn't working out uh, no matter how hard I tried. And I tried very hard. I did, did my lessons did my practicing every day, but I just, just didn't have what it takes in here. I think they call that the, is it the embouchure? 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 I think that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it wasn't working out for me. So I went to this, my music teacher, I was now in the fifth grade. I went to uh, a man named Gene Wilmoth, who was a mallet instrument guy and a great teacher. And he said to me, yeah, I can see you're having problems, Chris. Um, but I think you have a very good sense of rhythm. What do you say we switch you over to the drums? And now 
all I wanted to do was play music. I didn't really care what instrument. And so I said, great. And he gave me a, a, a beginner's book. Uh, and he gave me the little drum pad, which is a piece of rubber stuck onto a piece of wood and a pair of sticks. And I started practicing and practicing, you know, the single stroke roll and the double stroke roll, then the five stroke roll then the seven stroke roll and then the paradiddles and the ratamacues and the, all these rudiments, drum rudiments. I, I was taught by Mr. Wilmoth and, um, it worked out really well for me because now I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and that that was a snare drum, your first drum, uh, according to to what you wrote in, in uh, your memoir. Yeah, which again, which again is just so beautifully written, and we'll get into it a little bit more a little later on. You had a band. Your first band was called the Lost Chords. Is that correct? And, and it was a cover band. You did Beatles yeah. and Beach Boys. Talk about that, your, your very first band. Yes, my my first band was called The Lost Chords, and, and I still love that name very much. Must resurrect it sometime. But uh, The Lost Chords consisted of a bunch of guys that played in the school band along with me, and we were uh, well aware of the Beatles and the the how much the girls loved the Beatles and also how great the music was. So, so we were inspired by that, you know, that great performance on the Ed Sullivan show. And we formed a little garage band. We played like a taste of honey and things like that. Chris, do you, do you remember the first time outside of the, the school orchestra, uh, when you first played in front of people, when you first played in front of an audience and what that moment felt like? I do uh, very clearly. It was uh, one of the most, how, how shall I say, sh highly chaperoned shows I've ever done. <laughs> and, and, and it was in the basement, the the youth fellowship of the Fox Chapel Presbyterian Church. And the Lost Chords played and uh, it was our first show. And it was so exciting to me. I mean, I, the, the kids really got excited, even though, I mean, who knows? I wish I had a recording. Who knows what we really sounded like? But the kids got excited, and we in the band were terribly excited. And it was just a, a wonderful experience, which, you know, it made me think, wow, I could really do this. So you were a young teenager at the time of Lost Chords, and, and with that performance and, and other playing at that time did you have any sense that you were starting down a path that would lead you toward becoming a professional musician and you know obviously a music legend i mean again bear in mind you're 14 15 whatever it was yes well it was a dream that i had and i shared that dream with many many other people across the country and in fact the world that that one day i would be in a band and the band would be famous and, and that uh, I would come to come back to my hometown and people would like be all excited. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was a dream that one day came true for me. And um, I'm very grateful for that. It, so in high school, you discovered uh, another passion, which was art. And uh, you, you thought then of 
becoming an artist. And, and that interest and passion in art in high school ultimately led you to apply to and be accepted at the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, as it's commonly known. Talk yes. about that. Talk about the path that brought you to RISD, which is where, you know, the next stage of your career began to unfold. Well, yes, I I, I began to study. I, I had always been interested in painting, not so much sculpture, but drawing and painting. And I had a, a, a very good art teacher. Uh, by this time, I was in high school, and he suggested to me that um, that maybe I should go to art school. Now, my parents were very conservative people. And uh, of course their reaction was, oh, well, how will he ever support himself? And my art teacher, whose name was David Miller said, but I'm going to recommend that Chris go to the Rhode Island School of Design because you know, the Rhode Island School of Design is the Harvard of art schools. And my parents, my father had gone to Harvard Law School, so my parents were like, oh, it's the Harvard of art schools. <laughs> well, oh, well, that's great. Yeah, so so they allowed me to uh, to go there. In fact, my father drove me up for the for the interview and we walked all around the the College Hill area of Providence, which is very beautiful, historic, has a great, great vibe to it. Uh, to this day, and uh, I ended up being accepted and and attending RISD, and oh, it was so it was so great. I mean, I'm still. I mean, I met Tina there. I met David Byrne there. I met many people that I'm still friends with who have been very successful in the arts, and uh, we're, we're all supporting ourselves just fine. Well, and how let's talk to us a little bit about both those those two really important relationships uh, with Tina, obviously, but also with David Byrne. How did you meet and, and, and how did you know that those uh, relationships were going to be so creatively productive? Well, with Tina, it was like love at first sight. Have you have you ever experienced that? Uh, I have. Yeah, it, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, whoa, and. Um, huh. Uh, with David, it was it was more of an artistic relationship, uh, a collaborative artistic relationship. And, uh, you know, uh, Tina be eventually became my girlfriend. Uh, I had to I had to be patient because she had another boyfriend at the time. I had to wait for that to uh, that guy to disappear. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Metaphorically, we 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 know, we know you mean because yeah, yeah. this was this was providence after all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, yes, providence was just wonderful. I mean, uh, it was. Of course, after four years, I was I had explored Benefit Street from one end to the other, and I I really needed to to get to New York City. And that's what uh, Tina wanted to do. And that's what David wanted to do. So we were all in agreement about that. And we we had hoped that we hoped that maybe we would start a band in New York City. That was, again, that was my dream. And uh, David said, okay. And uh, Tina was not yet convinced that it was a good idea for her to be in the band. She thought, oh no, that's for boys. That's rock and roll is a boys club. Um, 
and she was kind of right about that. But in spite of everything, one day she walked into our loft just off the Bowery on Christie Street with a Fender Precision bass guitar. And I was like, hallelujah, because, <laughs> because I knew that Tina, she had never played bass guitar before, but she had played folk guitar and she had played flute and she had played English handbells, <laughs> if you can imagine. She actually actually played those at the World's Fair in New York City and um, among other places. And uh, David and I uh, knew that Tina had a, uh, a shared aesthetic with us, an artistic aesthetic that we knew that it would work. At least I knew that it was work. I was quite certain that it would. And it did. I mean, she turned out to be one of the great bass players of all time. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Chris France, a founding member of two great bands, Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club, and the author of a new rock and roll memoir, Remain in Love. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris France TTC. That's Chris France, which is F R A N T Z T T C, like Tom Tom Club. So there you are living in the loft, the three of you, and, and forming what became Talking Heads. Were you rehearsing and writing and everything in that little loft down in, in New York City? Yes. This, this is the mid-70s, just to tell we, our audience. Yeah, we moved there in 1974. And at first, it was just David and I practicing alone and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to create a sound, a new kind of sound, well, a different kind of sound than, than what people had come to expect from rock and roll, uh, and also different lyrical content than what people had come to expect. I mean, <clears throat> early songs like, like Psycho Killer and Artists Only and Warning Sign, I mean, those are all, you know, kind of different from what you were hearing radio in those days. And uh, I'm still very proud of all those songs. Yeah, with good and, reason. Yeah, can you can you talk us a little bit through sort of like uh, how 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 did you actually write songs? It's sort of like there's the I think the 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 popular image of the artist toiling away um, in, in, in solitude and coming up with something, but you describe a much more collaborative process. It was always very collaborative until towards the end. Towards the end, David would come to us with songs that he had, you know, sketches of songs that he had already written. But in the early days, all through uh, up up until the uh, 
the mid eighties. Um, our songs were, were composed by, by jamming, by per playing together until we, and until we found a, a bit that we said, Oh, that sounds really hip. Let's, let's repeat that a few times until we memorize it. Cause we, in those days, we didn't even have a tape recorder. You know, we, wow. had, we, we would learn stuff and, and, and have to, have to, you know, ingrain it into our memory. And, uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like the script of a movie and maybe, maybe, maybe it will be a movie. In 1975, Talking Heads opened for the Ramones. That was really the "quote unquote" birth of the band. Yeah, and from from there it it took off. I mean, for all the reasons that we love and know, the quality of the music, the lyrics. I, mean, I remember so vividly listening to Talking Heads for the first time and going, "Wow, what a band!" Talk about how it all of a sudden the dream you talked about earlier exploded and be, began to be realized. Well. We were very fortunate to have this uh, little venue, this little rock and roll dive bar called CBGB's. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'll start over. We were very fortunate to have this little rock and roll dive bar called CBGB's just three blocks away. And we would go there regularly. And the, the first time I went there, I saw the Ramones. The second time I saw Patti Smith. And the third time I saw television. And so I thought, whoa, this place is happening. And um, so we, we, we became regulars there. And when we had enough, when we, we uh, regular audience members is what I mean. And when we had enough songs composed, we uh, actually, I went to the owner, Hilly Crystal, and I said, uh, Hilly, uh, we got a band and uh, we'd like to audition to play here. And he said, well, what kind of music do you play? And I say, <laughs> I said, well, we play in a style of our own. And he chuckled and he, he, I think he'd maybe heard that one before. And he said, well, I could put you on in front of the Ramones on Thursday night. And if it goes well, you can play the whole weekend with them. And I said, great, we'll do it. And we didn't even have a band name yet. So we had to hurry up and think of a band name, which a friend of ours, his name was Wayne, Wayne Z from Chicago. And Wayne had been with us at RISD and he was visiting and he knew we were searching for band names. And he said, I was recently reading TV Guide. I mean, who reads TV Guide? But, 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 Wayne, but Wayne did and he said, they had a glossary of cameraman lingo for for television and one of the one of the words or terms in the glossary was talking heads which is the most boring yet also the most informative type of programming and so we said talking heads talking heads and we all liked it tina liked it david liked it i liked it and we decided to go with that and because, you know, it didn't connote any particular type of music, really. It might have been a comedy team or an improv group or something like that. But it, it didn't sound like a heavy metal band or a punk band or any, anything like that. So we chose Talking Heads. We opened for the Ramones. Johnny Ramone said, yeah, they suck. So they'll make us look good. You know? <laughs> 
they they can open for us and uh and uh now when it took off was uh shortly thereafter hilly crystal at cbgb's decided to have something he called a festival of underground rock and these were all unrecorded bands and we played at that festival and uh we i think every band played a few times and and uh the next thing we knew our picture was on the cover of the village voice in this great article which said tired of glitter check out the conservative impulse of the new rock underground and uh and then things just started to roll and uh in fact a couple times we had to put the brakes on and say no we're not ready to make a record no we're not ready to do a live tv uh broadcast uh come back in a year and, and which drove the record company people crazy but but uh fortunately seymour stein of sire records was patient and uh, he said it was the most difficult year of his life <laughs> but but uh in november 1st of november of 1976 we we signed a recording contract with sire records for five albums and <laughs> and also tina and i got engaged to be married on the same day so so now now you're touring internationally which is just you know phenomenal uh, many of us have obviously been at a concert in the audience but a few of us have actually been on stage talk about what it is like to perform live in front of a large crowd you know what you're feeling what you're thinking the role of of a drummer you write very eloquently about all of this in in your book well um there's a big difference between performing in a club you know with an in an intimate situation to performing uh, to a large audience in a in an arena or a festival or something like that in the in the small clubs you can look people in the eye and you can gauge their reaction and and it's intimate in a big venue uh like let's say uh the us festival <laughs> which uh, we performed at out in california uh, there were five hundred thousand people in attendance and so we were like okay heads down do your thing see at the end of the show <laughs> because, <laughs> because, i mean i mean you 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 instead of uh responding to individuals you're responding to this mass of people and and thank goodness they they liked us <laughs> Dude, would, would you uh, for a show like that so you're 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 an established act now you you're a tight band do you still get nervous oh yeah i get i get stage fright really badly sometimes and uh wow. i found this i found this homeopathic remedy called gelsemian simperverens it's a, it comes in those little boiron tubes and you put a few of those under your tongue it's homeopathic it's all natural and it just chills you out a little bit so you're not freaking <laughs> <laughs> well so uh in 1981 talking heads uh, went into hiatus uh and in that in that downtime for the band you and tina started tom tom club talk to us about that band 
Well, Tom Tom Club was a true musical collaboration between, uh, well, of course, Tina and myself were sort of the leaders of the collaboration. But we we brought on board her uh, two of her sisters, Laura and Lonnie, to sing along with her. We uh, brought on board Adrian Ballou, the guitarist who had been working with Talking Heads. And, you know, D David did a solo. David announced he was doing a solo album, which turned out to be the Catherine Wheel. And when he announced that, Jerry said, well, if David's going to do a solo album, I'm going to do a solo album. So Jerry was doing his, Adrian played on all three, David's, Jerry's, and ours. And uh, he was kind of like the, uh, the stunt guitarist. <laughs> and uh, we also worked with a young Jamaican uh, engineer slash producer named Stephen Stanley. I think he was only 21 at the time, maybe 22, but uh, very gifted as an engineer. And he was one of the in-house guys at, at uh, Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas, where we made the first, second, and I think, well, at least the first two Tom Tom Club albums. And that record, it was like a gift to us because, you know, we were, Tina and I were feeling a little bit uh like outsiders at the time a little bit you know i wouldn't say dispirited but we were challenged by our business situation with talking heads and that album uh well the first single wordy rapping hood went to uh top 10 in every country in europe and number one in argentina and in mexico you know, you can sell a lot of records down in South America and Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we had a smash hit and all of a sudden, like we were, we had newfound respect from people in the business and that was really good. Uh, Chris, we've got about 30 seconds left. What are you and Tina up to now? Well, Tina's uh, writing a new book, uh, her first I can't tell you anything about it because I haven't seen it. <laughs> we'll uh, look for it for sure when it comes out. I, I'm working on it. I'm about to begin working on another book, which has nothing to do with the music business, really. And uh, we also have this little thing called Chris Untina, which is an electronic music project inspired by Kraftwerk. And uh, we hope to get to that real soon. Well, we will look forward to all of that. In the meantime, Remain in Love is just a great, great read. Chris France, thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>